Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, just a brief housekeeping here. I just received an update from a former podcast guest. Meg Smaker was my guest for episode 300, where we discussed her cancellation. She's a documentarian who made a film originally titled Jihad Rehab. It's now The Unredacted. And if you recall, her film was accepted to the Sundance Film Festival and others, and then she was promptly canceled for having the temerity to make a film on this topic while being of the wrong racial and religious identity. And anyone who heard that episode understands that she was absolutely the wrong target of this kind of activist hysteria, having lived for years in Yemen and having produced an entirely compassionate and balanced film. Anyway, the response to that podcast was overwhelmingly positive, and she had a GoFundMe campaign to help her release the film, which I think only had a few thousand dollars in it before we recorded our interview. And after you guys heard from Meg, very quickly, she raised over three quarters of a million dollars. So needless to say, that was a tremendous help to her. And uh, she's now releasing the film herself. And there are upcoming theater dates for the month of April in New York, Washington, Chicago, Denver, Austin, San Antonio, Los Angeles, uh, and perhaps other cities are being added here. Anyway, the information can all be found at jihadrehab.com. Today I'm speaking with Bart Ehrman. Bart is a leading authority on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity and a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of six New York Times bestsellers and has written and edited more than 30 books, including Misquoting Jesus, How Jesus Became God, The Triumph of Christianity, Heaven and Hell, and most recently, Armageddon, which is the focus of today's conversation. The topic today is really the the end of the world, as viewed through the book of Revelation, uh, and more importantly, what Christians, especially in the United States, believe about prophecy and the consequences of that belief. It's always great to talk to Bart. I don't tend to focus on religion much these days, and it's always amazing to be reminded of what people specifically believe on this front. It really is quite extraordinary, and unfortunately still all too consequential. And now I bring you Bart Ehrman. I am here with Bart Ehrman. Bart, thanks for joining me again. Ah, Thanks for having me. So you have written a new book titled Armageddon, which, um, I mean, I guess all the products of uh, biblical prophecy are um, attention-getting, but the the concept of Armageddon is... uh, is sits close to the heart of, uh, I would imagine, all evangelical Christians. I want to track through your book because it's a discussion of Revelation, the, the book of Revelation, you know, which uh, you know, I, I've, I've read before. I can't say I committed much of its sequence to memory, but I, I want you to tell us what is in there, and, and we'll talk about its implications for Christian belief, particularly in the U.S., and also the future of our world. But before we do, You've been on the podcast before, and we spoke about many issues related to what we're going to touch on today, but 
Can you remind people of your background? Because it's pretty relevant to understanding how you come at these topics. Uh, yeah, well, it is because so I, when I was in, um, I was raised in kind of a nominally Christian household, but we we weren't nominal. We went to church, but uh, when I was fifteen, I had a born again experience and became a very committed evangelical. And after high school, instead of doing something kind of normal like <laughs> go to university, I went to Moody Bible Institute, which was a bastion of fundamentalism. And uh, the relevance to this is that uh, I believed that every word in the Bible was inspired by God, and the book of Revelation we took as a prediction of what was soon going to happen in our, in our lifetimes. Mm. And so that's, uh, and so that, that's, how I, that, that, that's how I started out, as a firm believer in the Bible. And I, I, ended, up, I ended up going to Wheaton to finish my degree and did a degree in English, and then I I went off to Princeton Theological Seminary, and when I, when I was there, I was still studying the Bible. It, it was a seminary. It's a Presbyterian seminary, but it tended to be more liberal in its orientation, and uh, the professors there, by and large, didn't think that the Bible was infallible or inerrant. They thought that there, you know, there were mistakes in the Bible and contradictions, and it, it took me a long time to get my head around that. Uh, because I just didn't, I didn't believe it at first. But then eventually, as I started reading the New Testament more in the original Greek, and I started reading the Old Testament in Hebrew, I started realizing there really are problems here. And so I gave, I gave up my view of the inerrancy of the Bible. I remained a liberal Christian for a long time, but I, in the midst of uh, giving up the idea of inerrancy, I gave up the idea that the, that the book of Revelation is predicting what's really going to be happening soon. And so for a long time, I had a, the kind of standard liberal Christian view, which is that the book of Revelation is, is not a literal description of the future, but a, a kind of a, a book of hope, that those who are being oppressed for uh, being righteous now will be rewarded later. Not, not that it's a literal description of what will happen, but it, 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 it's a, an apocalyptic sense that at the end, God's going to make right everything that's wrong. And so it's supposed to be a, a book of hope. And so that's what I held for a long time, until about five years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I really started studying Revelation, and I thought, you know, both of those views, they're both wrong. It's absolutely not talking about our future the way almost everybody thinks it is, but it's also not really a book of hope. It's a violent, wrathful book and about getting revenge. And, and so I, I've completely changed my, my view about it. Yeah, if memory serves, Jesus comes back and he's not in a good mood and he's really not one for turning the other cheek. No. <laughs> he's, he's introduced as the, uh, the lamb that was slain, and that makes you think, starting off, that, well, he, so this will be a book about how you know, Jesus suffered violence from others, and it'll be a book supporting that uh, approach to, uh, to nonviolence. But as you, it doesn't take long before you realize that this lamb who was slain is coming back for vengeance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's out for blood, and uh, that's what he gets. So let's define a few terms before we get into the book itself, because I realize, I, I think I'm using one of these common terms inaccurately. The term apocalypse, uh, which I gather is, a, is just a synonym for revelation, has come to mean, in I think common parlance, it's more or less synonymous with a calamity, you know, and, and a point of no return. It's like the, the apocalypse is the end of the world. And uh, this is just a confusion based on the fact that that's what is being described in Revelation? 
Yeah, more or less. The, the, you're right. I mean, the, the word apocalypse is a, it's a Greek word, I mean, uh, apocalypsis, and it means something like an unveiling or a revealing. The, the Latin equivalent is revelation, revelatio. Mm. And so uh, they're just, in, in Latin, it'd be revelation, and in Greek, it'd be apocalypse. And I, th- I think what happened was that this term apocalypse came to be applied to an entire literary genre from the ancient world, which no, you know, people don't write in this genre anymore. But in these apocalypses, Jewish and Christian apocalypses, they often talked about the crises that were coming and about how in the end it would be okay. But in the, for now, it's just going to be hell on earth. And so the apocalypse came to refer to this, uh, this period of hell on earth before it was resolved. And it's because that's what these apocalypses mm-hmm. discuss, and so that's how the term then, then shifted to mean, to mean the end. Right, but do you think that's an appropriate usage now, or is that a corruption of the term that we should avoid? Because, I, for instance, I... No, I, no, I think, I think it's fine. I think, it's, I think the term has morphed into that. And just, okay. you know, just like a lot of terms mean a variety of things in different contexts, this term, usually when we say the apocalypse is coming, you know, that's, that's what we mean. Right, right. Then I will not uh, issue any retractions over over phrases <laughs> like a, a misinformation apocalypse that I was worrying about with social media. Right. What about the term Armageddon? Armageddon is a term made up by the author of of Revelation. It it is based on a couple of Hebrew words. It's referring to uh, the valley outside of Megiddo. Megiddo. So Armageddon. Megiddo. Megiddo is a town in Israel. Uh, that you can still visit. Anybody who visits Israel could see it. And it's a, it's a place outside of this, this town, the city, there was, a, um, there was a place where a lot of major battles happened in the Old Testament. And Armageddon in the book of Revelation is the place where the final battle will take place, where the armies of the enemies of God are gathered together, and Christ comes from heaven with the heavenly armies to do battle. And it's no battle. <laughs> Christ, Christ wipes them all out, uh, with you know, very uh, quite simply. But it's so it's the site of the final battle, and so that too has come to mean something like you know the the, the ultimate end of end of the world. Well, let's talk about Revelation and what we know about it as a book and its the history of its inclusion or not in the canon. What do we know about John of Patmos, who supposedly authored it? Well, I think, I think the person that we call John of Patmos really did author it. One of the things about these apocalypses, this ancient genre, is that usually they're written pseudonymously. Normally, the person claims to be some famous person from the past. And so we have you know, an apocalypse of Abraham, the father of the Jews, or an apocalypse of Enoch, this man who never died. Or we even have an apocalypse of Adam, <laughs> as in Adam and Eve. Who you know wrote an apocalypse, mm-hmm. and the reason they they pick these ancient spiritual figures is because these books contain revelations of the secrets that the divine secrets that are going to make sense of the chaos that's happening down here on Earth, and who better to be be given a revelation than one of these people? So the the apocalypse of John is somewhat unusual because the person tells us his name. His name's John, but he doesn't doesn't tell us which John. He is. John was a common name in Judaism at the time, and this person appears to be someone known to his, to his audience, 
He does not claim to be the disciple John, Hmm. John the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' disciples. The book ended up being included in the New Testament because people ended up thinking that it was that John. But already in early Christianity, the scholar, some of the scholars realized, yeah, it, it's not the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, for example. Mm. So all we know about this John of Patmos is what we find in the book, which is that he appears to be writing from, from the island of Patmos, which is off the west coast of what's now Turkey. And he says he's there for the word of God, and that's usually taken to mean that he's been exiled as, you know, for he's, he's being persecuted and being, has been exiled for his Christian activities but he doesn't actually say that. And so it's not completely clear why he's on Patmos, but it has something to do with his Christian ministry. Hmm. And one thing that struck me in your book was the claim that the Greek in the book isn't very good, right? And this put me in mind of something Nietzsche wrote. I forget where this aphorism occurs, but uh, he said it was clever of God to learn Greek when he wanted to become an author and not to learn it better. And I, I always took that as just, you know, Nietzsche being snide. But you say that the, the Greek text actually is kind of substandard Greek. Yeah. So Nietzsche, as you know, started out teaching classics. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was actually, he was very, very good at Greek. And, he, and the Greek of the entire New Testament was often lambasted in the ancient world by ancient literary elite as being really kind of second rate. And, and most, of, most of the New Testament is second-rate by high literary standards, but the book of Revelation is far beyond that. It, it's bad. Mm. The last time I taught, a, I, I've got an adjunct appointment in the classics department here at uh, UNC, and a few years ago I was teaching an advanced undergraduate class on the New Testament Greek, and one of the assignments I gave them is I had them read chapter one of Revelation and to list all of the grammatical mistakes, <laughs> not, just, not just bad Greek, you know, not just like not very good, but actually bad, mistaken Greek. This author just doesn't write well. And the, the theory that most people have for that is that his native language was maybe Aramaic or some kind of Semitic language, and that Greek is his second language, and so he's not as good at it. That's, that's what I used to teach, too. But mm-hmm. the more I looked into it, the more I realized it's not, that this, it's not that he's showing that he normally could speak a Semitic language. It's that he just doesn't write very well. And that's not, that's not weird. Most people don't write very well. <laughs> so you, know, you shouldn't expect that just because somebody can write Greek, it means they're going to be able to write well. And I think he's just somebody who's not a good writer. Well, so what have fundamentalists done with this inconvenient detail that this text that is supposedly inerrant and directly inspired by the creator of the universe shows in its original, the language of its original composition, less than perfect mastery of the language. It's really uh, quite interesting. There are, there are biblical scholars, not just fundamentalists, but others too, who, who have explanations for this. One explanation that gets floated around is that this author actually could write very good Greek. And they point to some passages where the Greek's pretty good. And so they say, well, if he could write Greek well, then it must mean that he's choosing not to. (laughs) And so one theory is that this author, because he's giving such a counter-cultural message, 
that he's writing it in street lingo, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that he's, you know, and that he's, he's trying, you know, to sound kind of countercultural. That's, it's an interesting idea. I actually considered it for a while, but it just isn't true. We, we know nothing about Greek street lingo to begin with, so there's no way to establish that that's what, th- what it would, that this is what it would look like. But apart from that, you know, even some of my not best students can sometimes construct good sentences. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't mean they always can. And I, so I, so there, I don't think there's much of an explanation, but they, they usually just say something like, you know, God is, God's giving him the absolute right idea. So the words are right, even if the grammar's wrong. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you don't can, sound you, you can imagine how that lands with right. an atheist uh, yes. over here. But um, Yeah, well, I'm an atheist yeah. too. It doesn't yeah. land well yeah, with me either. <laughs> okay, so let, let's talk about how the world ends according to this text. I don't know in what sort of detail you want to track through it, but just give us the, the story of Jesus' return as described in Revelation. Yeah, so... The book describes itself as a book about the wrath of God and the Lamb, the Lamb being, being Jesus. The way, the way it works is really not that complicated. Most, most, I mean, the reality is most people avoid the book of Revelation, except for the people who want to see what's going to be happening next year sometime, the people who are fundamentalists who are interpreting it in order to, to, to show that, you know, what's going to happen in our near future. Most other people just avoid it because it just seems so weird and bizarre. And my, my experience is that most students, mo- most students or most others are afraid of it because it's so weird. But in fact, it's not hard to follow if, you, if you're just given the roadmap. Mm. Remind me, wh- when was it included in the Bible? Well, that's, that's hard to say because the, the Bible was never, there was never a vote or anything about which books would be in. It was widely debated for the first several centuries. And it wasn't until the fourth century that the majority of church leaders started agreeing that it was uh, canonical scripture. Mm-hmm. So it was floating around, and it was, it was highly, highly controversial, right. not for reasons that we would think of today. Today, the reasons we find it controversial is because of all the blood and violence, but that, that wasn't so much the problem. Mm. The, the way it works here is that John is given a vision of the heavenly realm. This is typical in ancient apocalypses. The prophet is taken up into heaven to see how the realities up there make sense of what's happening down here. In chapter 4, John goes up, and he goes into the throne room of God, and God is holding—God's on the throne. He sees God on the throne holding a scroll that has seven seals on it. So it's this writing that's been sealed with seven seals. And the scroll is taken by the Lamb, the Christ image, and Christ starts breaking the seals. And every time he breaks one of the seals, a catastrophe hits the earth, usually a very nasty catastrophe. When he breaks the seventh seal, then there's, there's an introduction to seven angels who each has a trumpet, and they blow their trumpets. And with the tr- blowing of each trumpet, more disasters happen. And when the seventh trumpet, seventh angel blows his seventh trumpet, we're introduced to seven angels who have bowls on their shoulders of God's wrath, and they pour God's wrath out on the earth. So by this time, you've had three, you've had a, a threefold series of seven disasters each, and after that, even God's had enough, and He arranges for the Battle of Armageddon, 
where uh, his chief enemy, called the Beast, uh, which is the Antichrist figure, marshals his armies. Christ comes forth from heaven with his armies, slaughters the Beast and the armies of earth, and then that introduces a thousand-year rule of Christ here on earth, with his, just with the martyrs of Jesus, following which there's a final judgment. Everybody who's ever lived is raised from the dead and faces judgment. They're, if those who are on God's side are rewarded, those who are opposed to God are thrown into a lake of burning sulfur, and they don't live there forever. They're not being tormented forever. They're, they're destroyed there. That's how, they, that's how he kills everybody on mm. earth, which is 99% of the population that's ever lived. And then the saints are given a new heaven and a new earth. A Jerusalem descends from heaven, a new Jerusalem that is 1,500, 1500 miles cube, and it's solid gold with gates of pearl, and they live there happily ever after. Mm, well, it's all so reasonable. It's hard to know where to start <laughs> to, <laughs> right. to, 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 to doubt right. it. Um, right. So let's define a few more terms that will be familiar to people, who, you know, many of whom who have not even opened this part of the Bible because they've just been received into the common conception of American Christianity in particular. Where does the rapture come into this picture? Ah, yes. This is what I start with in my book, because when I was a, a fundamentalist Christian, I believed that the rapture was going to be coming soon. The rapture is the doctrine that is found in conservative evangelical and fundamentalist circles that says that Jesus is coming back from heaven to take his followers out of the world before all these disasters hit. And so the idea is that surely, you know, the true followers of Jesus aren't going to have to experience this, and so Jesus takes them out. The word rapture comes from a, comes from a, rat, a Latin word, which means to be snatched up. Hmm. And so the, so the idea is that Jesus returns, snaps up all the Christians up to heaven, and then all hell breaks out on earth. And this, this period is, of chaos and suffering that the good Christians will be able to avoid by being raptured is called the tribulation? In uh, evangelical fundamentalist circles, yes. It's called the tribulation, and in those circles, it's to last for seven years. Hmm. And so it's a seven-year tribulation. When I, was, when I was a student in the 1970s, we thought the rapture was coming soon, and there was all, all this talk about how we didn't want to be left behind, <laughs> because it was, uh, that would be a very bad thing. And that, there was a movie that was called Thief in the Night that came out in something like 1972, a very bad, low-budget movie. But it was about the rapture having happened, and the people who are left behind become are controlled by the Antichrist, including the liberal Christians who didn't believe in the rapture. <laughs> and so <laughs> this scared the daylights out of all of us. And, and so that, that ended up developing in the 1990s with uh, this series, the Left Behind series, yeah. that was written by Tim LaHaye and Philip Jenkins. That by the time Tim LaHaye, Timothy LaHaye died in whatever it was a few years ago, there had been 80 million copies of this thing sold. Yeah, And there's been very interesting research on it showing that most people who read it simply assumed it's what the Bible says. And so, <laughs> which returns me to your question, where is all of this in the book of Revelation? And the startling answer is, 
it's not in Revelation at all. There is nothing about the rapture in the book of Revelation. This is a and the rapture was the rapture had never been conceptualized until the 1830s. So throughout the entire history of Christianity until the 1830s, nobody had ever thought of the rapture, mm. but it came into existence then and took over evangelical Christianity first in England and then uh, and then here in America. So on what basis did that doctrine appear? It's a little bit complicated, but there is a there's a man named John Henry Darby who founded this small group of kind of, it's kind of like a denomination, a small denomination called the Plymouth Brethren. Hmm. And it was in the 18 about 1830 he started this this group. And they were they're very hardcore Bible believers. And he thought that when you read the Bible carefully, you can see that the Bible is set up to show that God deals with the human race differently at different periods of time. And so when he, when he deals with Adam and Eve, he just tells them, don't eat the fruit off of this tree, and that's it. Uh, they do eat the fruit, and so that messes everything up. And so later he sends a flood, because there's sin all through the world, he needs to destroy the world. And then he tells Noah uh, that he needs to institute uh, government. <laughs> And so he tells Noah, if anybody kills someone else, there's, it's the death penalty. And so that goes along. The, the idea of conscience and govern, government go on for a while until Abraham comes, and then he, he gives Abraham a promise that there's going to be, that the, his, design, his descendants will be uh, the people of God. And, and so at every point, things are changing depending on what God does at the moment. He gives Moses the law, finally, and then People are under the law until Jesus comes, and Jesus saves them from the law. And so there are these periods of time that God deals with people differently depending on the moment. And so there are seven of these periods, and they're called dispensations. Mm -hmm. And these, at the end of the sixth dispensation, at the end of the Christian period, God sends Jesus to take everyone out. There's this hell on earth, and then there's the millennium, a thousand-year rule of Christ. And so what Darby wanted to argue is that God is certainly not going to have his righteous people suffer through this tribulation before the millennium, so he takes them out of the world. So he came up with this thing. He called it the secret rapture because he said, the Bible says no one knows when it will happen, so it's a secret when it will happen, so it's the secret rapture. And then that ended up becoming a, a popular view over, over a long period of time. Hmm. And, and there's this distinction between premillennialism and postmillennialism, which offer a very different picture of the end times. Uh, how is there debate about which is true here? Isn't there just a clear description as to the, the sequencing here? I mean, you might want to define what the difference is. Yeah. But... Well, it, it weirdly, you know, part of my book is trying to show how all of these things actually are closely connected with social and political realities in the modern world. And one of the very strange things is that this kind of thinking actually started with the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. in, when the French Revolution hit, theologians in England were very, very you know, upset and thought, this is surely an indication that the end is almost here. This started the modern idea that the Bible is predicting the imminent end. For most of history, not just the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible was not interpreted as a prediction of our future. 
But with the craziness of the French Revolution, the, uh, the chaos and the slaughter, theologians started saying, this, look, this is, this is what was predicted. That view came over to America, and especially in America, there was a much more positive outlook on the future. Technology was developing, sciences were developing, the Enlightenment was, was hitting, <laughs> hitting uh, America, and there were theologians like Jonathan Edwards, who's uh, most famous for his sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, mm-hmm. but he was actually, a, he was a real intellectual. He uh, was trained in philosophy and in science, and he, he went to Yale when he was uh, something like, I don't know, 13. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a really smart guy. And he, he developed the idea that the way we are improving here on Earth, uh, and especially in America, we are moving toward the kingdom of God. We are going to be implementing the kingdom of God, that this was God's plan all along, that America would introduce the world into a period of peace and prosperity, and that that would be the millennium that the Bible is talking about. It's it's not a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. It's the the glories we're going to be bringing in by our advances. In that understanding of things, Jesus was going to come back, but he would come back after the millennium in order to bring eternal life here on earth, so that it wouldn't just be people would live and die in this, this great kingdom, but that there, it would be an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus would come after the millennium, and that was, that was post-millennialism. That kind of optimism swept through uh, a lot of Christianity through the 19th century, and it took a very serious hit with uh, World War I, mm-hmm. where it turned out that the advances in technology led to things like machine guns, and the realities of war became apparent, and it started looking like we're not really improving things by our, uh, by our advances. Then, of course, there was a depression, and then there was a second world war, and, and atomic bombs drop, and people basically gave up on post-millennialism then. Mm. They said, look, we are, not, we are not heading toward the kingdom. And a spirit of pessimism came in. The pessimism had started back with Darby back in the 1830s, but now just about everybody bought into it that in fact this world's getting worse and worse, not better and better, and it's going to continue getting worse until real craziness hits. And so the idea then was that Jesus is coming back not after we develop a millennium, but before the millennium, because we're not going to develop it. Uh, what's going to happen is Jesus will take his uh, followers out of the world, and then after this chaos happens for seven years, he will then return and start the millennium. And, so, and, and then the final judgment is after that. Uh, and so the idea is that Jesus returns before the millennium, not afterwards. Mm. So that's, pre, that's pre-millennial. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because they have enormously different ethical and political consequences, these views. You know, so if you're a mm. pre-millennialist, fundamentalist, you and you know you're eager for Jesus to come back and set the world straight. You look at the chaos of human events, and no, no matter how bad things get, there's always the silver lining. Like the the, the worse things are, the better they are on some level, because mm-hmm. it's not until the wheels completely come off that Jesus returns. Whereas if you're a post millennialist, you know that he's not going to come back until we actually manage to build something like a paradise here on earth and maintain it for a thousand years, right? So it's a very different expectation of the fulfillment of prophecy, and it's a very different 
political and ethical project in the meantime. Are there any post-millennialists left? Or is- <laughs> yeah, well, the fundamentalists are all pre-millennialists. Mm. But there are, you know, there are, you know, Christianity is a very diverse phenomenon in, throughout the world, and especially in America. And most liberal Christians don't subscribe to this. Like mainline Christians, you know, just the mainline Protestant denominations, you know, Methodist mm-hmm. and, and Presbyterian, Episcopalian, et cetera, et cetera. They don't, they don't subscribe to these things. And they, they tend to have a much stronger social agenda as a result because they think we need to improve our lot here. And they tend not to even think or talk about millennial issues. Um, they think the book of Revelation is a, it's a symbolic book. It's filled with metaphor. It's not meant to be taken as a description of, of things that are actually going to happen. Those who do think that it's actually going to happen tend to be premillennialist, and some of them, uh, some of the fundamentalist leaders, are quite anxious for things to get worse and worse, and seem to be rather pleased when there are major catastrophes in the world or major wars in the world, because this is a sign that we're near the end. So, hallelujah, it's almost here. How has this impacted the founding of the state of Israel and, and the Christian support for Israel. I mean, there's this discussion of what you call Christian Zionism in the book, and um, the fact that Israel can count on American evangelicals as their really strongest base of support. The, the logic of it is fairly perverse, given the expectations of premillennialists. Well, perhaps you can describe what's happening there. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things that uh, that I deal with in the book because it's something that people probably wouldn't wouldn't expect that American foreign policy has long been driven by these expectations of the coming of Jesus. Who would have thought? Mm. But in fact, it's true. In the 19th century, once people started thinking that uh, it looks like we're near the we're getting to the end of the world because of what's happening in in France and and other places, they they realized that the Bible talks about Israel being regathered into as a sovereign state. There are these passages in the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that talk about the people coming back into the land. Those predictions in those prophets is are those predictions are actually talking about ancient times. And so when the Babylonians destroyed Judah, yeah, destroyed Judah in 586 BCE, the prophet, prophets would say, you're going to come back to the land. And they did. And so they started Israel again. Israel was destroyed in the year 70, more or less, or then later, somewhat later, in 135, Israel was basically kicked, Jews were kicked out of the, out of the land. Mm. But you still had these books in the Old Testament that said they're going to be regathered. And so in the 19th century, some forward-looking Christians said that has to happen. It has to happen before the end comes. And so there started to be a movement to support Israel's return, uh, return to the land. That came to a head, uh, especially in Britain. And Britain, of course, and there were a number of Christians who were supporters of the Zionist movement in Britain. And so they, they, uh, they supported the idea of Israel becoming a sovereign state again, and the Balfour De- Declaration in 1917 was the declaration of the British government to recognize Israel, and it was largely driven by the evangelical Christians in Britain because they wanted Israel to be a land again because that would fulfill the prophecies. So that happens in 1948, and then what develops is a more precise and specific idea among Christians 
that Jesus cannot come back to earth to take his people out of it until Israel controls all of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. (laughs) And the reason for this is not from Revelation so much as from uh, another book in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, a book that claims to be written by Paul, we're told in chapter 2 that there'll be this kind of antichrist figure who rises up at the end, who will go uh, and take his seat in the temple of Jerusalem and declare himself to be God. Well, Christians started thinking, wait a second, the temple was destroyed in the year 70, and it has never been rebuilt, so it has to be rebuilt uh, before this prophecy can come true, before Jesus can come back. The problem is that the temple uh, was destroyed, it uh, was located on what is now the Temple Mount, and its location, its precise location, is where the Dome of the Rock is, uh, the Islamic sacred site. And so Christians came to think, some fundamentalist Christians came to think that Israel has to take over the Temple Mount, has to get control of all of Jerusalem, take over the Temple Mount, destroy the Dome of the Rock, and rebuild the Temple before the Antichrist can rise up and then Jesus can return. These expectations became just, they became part of the evangelical mentality so that especially, well, in the middle of the 20th century, but especially in the 1970s with the rise of the, of the moral majority with Falwell and, and that group, they became ardent followers of Israel and supporters of Israel. And starting with Menachem Begin, uh, Israeli politicians realized Uh, There are way more American evangelicals who support Israel than there are American Jews, Mm -hmm. of course, Jews numerically. And so they started going after the American evangelical population and saying that we were allies with Israel and you need to support us because the prophecies are now becoming true. Netanyahu went to breakfast, the evangelical prayer breakfast, saying, we are allies, you know, the prophecies are coming true now, you need to support us. Of course, he didn't believe any of that at all, but the evangelicals did. And so that's why consistently in the evangelical community, there's a push for supporting Israel. Because if Israel doesn't take over the Temple Mount, Jesus can't come back. And so when when Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that wasn't just driven by—I mean, it was driven by politics, but it wasn't driven just by politics of the— uh, Israeli-Palestinian situation is driven by evangelicals who voted, who wanted hmm. this to happen because it's a move toward Israel taking over the Temple Mount. Do you happen to know what the expectations are of the ultra-Orthodox Jews with respect to the Messiah's return and the Temple being rebuilt? Is there do they have this, a similar sequence or not? Well, they don't. They, they don't have the Jesus part, right? They, they, <laughs> but they do they, see there is a, there, there is a Messiah. He's just not going to be Jesus. Yeah. So there is there are some evangelical groups who try to make common cause with the ultra orthodox on this point, and there are actually uh, there are some fundamentalist groups that are laying aside supplies to provide for the construction of the temple that would be in cooperation with these Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish groups. Mm. The big irony is that many of these very um, avid Christian Zionists, uh, like uh, John Hagee and some of these other very fundamentalist preachers, they love Israel, they adore Israel, and they hate Jews. Mm-hmm. They think that Israel 
is going to be restored and that they're going to get the temple built so that Jesus will come back and cast all the Jews into the lake of fire. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah, that's but yeah. You know, that's what's, so the that's what's so cynical about this alliance. Yeah, hugely cynical. Yeah. Now I'm remembering that I think this is the the orthodox view, or the ultra orthodox view that you can't rebuild the temple until certain requisites are met. There's no no one's clean enough to go onto the temple mount. I think to rebuild the temple, uh, I forget whether whether the Messiah has to have come back. First, or perhaps you you know the details there, but there's I, some, there's some I, impediment. I actually don't. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know the details. No. Yeah, I'm not sure they're they're totally aligned in their their expectations there. I don't think there's a single thing, but I mean, yeah, there's not a single view. But I I really I really yeah, don't. actually actually there was at one point they were looking for a red heifer. Yeah, that's right. I remember. Yeah, and, and that had. Yeah, said, no, there there are attempts to breed red heifers, and yeah. the fundamentalists have been involved with that. Some of the fundament, fundamentalist groups. They're keeping a red heifer. You need the red uh, sacrifice of a red heifer to be clean enough to then yeah. rebuild the temple. Yeah. I think that's the sequence. Yeah. That's right. But they, they've got those in hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Genetic engineering to the rescue. Exactly. So, yeah, there was a, there, you know, in case the relevance of all this to American politics is not absolutely obvious, there was a poll done in 2010. I don't know if there's more recent polling, but in 2010, it was revealed that nearly half of all American Christians, 47%, either are absolutely sure or think it quite probable that Jesus will return and start hurling people into the lake of fire by 2050, right? So 47% of American Christians, which is pretty close to 47% of Americans, expect the end of the world yeah. by 2050. Yeah. No, it's it's hugely significant. And their expectation is the rapture. They They think, you know, so the, the lake of fire has to wait a thousand years, but the rapture is going to happen by, you know, 2050. Right. So okay, they, so the, the lake of fire is not, the tribulation is bad, but it, the lake of fire is the, the final chapter that's of bad. Really bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the final, yeah. So, you know, it, it's a scary thing because uh, there have been a lot of studies by uh, sociologists about how that kind of belief affects, affects policy. And the reality is that that 47% who thinks, you know, we only have, you know, 30, 40 years, uh, they vote and they, they're encouraged to vote, of course, uh, more and more within uh, conservative circles. And if you think that the world is going to be ending in 40 years, say, you're not really that worried about the ice caps or about a burning planet generally or about and you know you you would think that's kind of a logical move, but in fact, this, you know, sociologists have done analyses of this and shown that people with an expectation that the end is coming, even if you don't know, you don't know if mm. it's going to be on March twenty third or something, but but the end is coming. If you think that, then you know you, you're not that interested in investing in the future because there's not going to be much of a future. Yeah, and famously, Reagan was talking about the signs and portents that suggested to him that. We were close to the fulfillment of prophecy, and his uh, Secretary of the Interior, James Watt, I think upon his swearing in, said something uh, fairly alarming about his being unsure just how many generations we have left before the prophecy is fulfilled. So yeah, it's, uh, it's always amazing to recognize that people in positions of power actually have their thinking about what we should do or what, what might be a good outcome here on Earth constrained by 
their belief in prophecy, right? Yeah, no, it, this was a, it was a serious time because Reagan and Casper Weinberger were uh, fans of this book, Late Great Planet Earth, mm, Hal in Lindsay, the 1970s, yeah. Hal Lindsay. That, and they actually, I think Lindsay actually went in and talked with, with them. And, you know, Reagan thought the bombs were going to fly, that this is just as predicted in scripture. And uh, that's not a very comforting thought for, the, uh, <laughs> for, uh, for your president to think. But then the James Watt thing, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he's being uh, interviewed and, uh, you know, for, when he was appointed to the cabinet, he was doing his congressional hearing and he said that he, yeah, we should protect the uh, resources for future generations. But of course, we don't know how many generations there will be before the Lord comes back. He was a Pentecostal Bible-believing Christian. And of course, he didn't, didn't do a lot of good for, for the environment. You know, it's, it's not unrelated. So what do we know about the beliefs regarding the Antichrist? Because at least in some passages, it sounds like it might not even be a person, right, in, in Revelation. Isn't it like a sea monster or something? <laughs> right. So the term Antichrist is, it's obviously used as a term for the, the major opponent of Christ. And to many people's surprise, the term itself doesn't occur in the book of Revelation. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're right about that. He's not called the Antichrist. He's called uh, the, the figure that is an Antichrist figure in Revelation is called uh, the beast, the beast from the sea. Mm. This is a, uh, an allusion to a passage in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel is kind of like the Old Testament forerunner of the book of Revelation. Uh, it also is filled with these bizarre visions about what's going to happen in the future. And the author of Revelation, John, knew Daniel quite well because he alludes to it all over the map. In Revelation, there is this figure who is a beast that comes up out of the sea that is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. This beast who uh, comes out of the sea is a beast with seven heads and ten horns, and he is described as the one who acquires power over all the earth, and the earth worships this beast, and basically he, cont he controls the entire economy. He makes it so nobody can buy or sell who does not worship him. And so he ta basically takes over the, the economy of the earth. Mm. And he, he's with, a Santa Wait a minute, with, with how many heads? Seven heads? Yeah, so... <laughs> so he's, is, it's going to look... Got, it's going to be a, an amazing broadcast on CNN when we see somebody with seven heads coming out of the <laughs> ocean, taking over the heads, economy. Yeah. But, yeah. but what happens in these apocalypses is that the seer will... He'll see this beast coming out of the sea, and he's got seven heads and ten horns, and the prophet won't understand anybody than, any better than we do. What in the world is that? And these apocalypses, because they're so mysterious, they're meant not to be obvious right at first sight, but there's always an angel standing by to explain what it's all about. Mm. And so when this beast shows up in chapter 13, he comes out of the sea and he's got all these heads, and one of the heads appears to suffer a mortal wound, but gets healed from it. And then, and you're wondering, well, who is this? And at the end of the chapter, the, uh, the angel explains to John that uh, if you want to know who this beast is, this beast has the number of a man. His number is 666. And so this is where the 666 thing comes from. It's interesting that in some manuscripts of Revelation, 
we don't have the original copy. We have later copies made. And in later copies, most of them have 666, but some have 616. And so, of course, people have had speculations over the years, you know, who, who, who this would be, you know, is it Mussolini? Is it, uh, is it Pope John Paul? Uh, when I was in college, somebody wrote a book arguing it was Henry Kissinger. <laughs> when I started teaching at, U, at, uh, at Rutgers, some pundits pointed out that Ronald Wilson Reagan had six letters in each name, <laughs> mm-hmm. 666. <laughs> so, right. So you get all this, these things. But what the angel is telling you is that it's a code that anybody in the ancient world would figure out. In ancient languages, both Greek and Hebrew, for example, they didn't have separate alphabetic and numerical systems the way we do. So we use a Roman or a Latin alphabet, but we use Arabic numerals. And in ancient languages, they, their, their letters functioned as their, as their numerals. And so in Hebrew, the first letter is Aleph, that's worth one. Baith, the second letter is two. Gimel, three. It goes like that. Till you get to 10, then the next letter will be 20, 30, 40, like that. Then you get to 100, then it's 100, 200, 300. So every letter has a numerical value, which means that every word can be, you can add up the equivalent of the letters to know what the numerical value of the word is and, and names. And so with all that as background, this beast wreaks havoc on the earth. He's opposed to the saints of God. He persecutes the Christians and draws their blood, and he's had this mortal wound. So what is that? Well, the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians was the mm-hmm. Emperor Nero in the year 64 after the fire in Rome. And if you spell Caesar Nero in Hebrew letters, it adds up to 666, Hmm. except there are two ways to spell it. There's one where you'd spell it Caesar Neron in Hebrew with a final N or a noon in Hebrew, and and doing it without the final noon. The noon is worth 50. Mm -hmm. And so, with the noon, it's 666, and without the noon, it's 616, <laughs> just like you get in the mm-hmm. manuscripts. And so this is talking about Caesar Nero, who was believed in the Roman world after, after he committed suicide in 68. There were, uh, there were widespread stories that lasted for a very long time, decades and even centuries, that Nero was coming back and that he was going to wreak vengeance on the Roman, on the Roman world. And so that's the mortal wound. It's somebody who has a mortal wound that gets healed, and it's Nero coming back. And so you have this, it's called the Nero Redivivus tradition. So this Mm. is, you know, it sounds mysterious and it sounds like a real beast, but the beast is a symbol for the Roman Empire and for its leader, Nero. And when do we think John of Patmos composed this book? So that's the interesting thing, is that he has to be composing it after the year 70, almost everybody thinks. Because he refers to the enemy, uh, this enemy of God, as Babylon the Great. Babylon was the city in the Old Testament that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple in 586 BCE. But in John's day, it was the city of Rome that destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple in 70 CE. Hmm. And so Rome is Babylon, which means that Rome, so that this book is being written after 70. And uh, from early Christianity, it was was thought that it was written sometime in the 90s of the Common Era, Hmm. uh, during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. So the Nero thing is about Nero Redivivus, that Nero's going to come back. 
Mm. But the, the book itself is being written about 30 years later. And, and who is the whore of Babylon, or is that just Rome? Ah, yeah, well, yeah, not just Rome, but yes, it is just Rome. <laughs> so in chapter 17, the prophet is taken out into this wilderness, and he sees this grotesque woman that is called the whore of Babylon, and she's sitting on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. <laughs> and so this time, this woman is decked in all of this rich jewelry and you know gold and silver and, and jewels, and she has fancy clothes on, and she's holding a cup in her hand that is filled with the abominations of her adulteries, and it, and it includes the, uh, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus that she's drinking. And on her head is written this word, Babylon the Great, the mother of whores. So she's sitting on this beast with seven heads and ten horns. And the angel now says, the seven heads are the seven hills that the woman is seated on. Well, anybody in the ancient world knew that Rome was the city built on the seven hills. Mm -hmm. And in case you don't get it, at the end, the uh, angel says, uh, okay, the woman is the city that is dominating the earth. <laughs> and you say, well, okay, what is that in John's day? So it's Rome. Hmm. So the whore of Babylon uh, is Rome, drunk with the blood of the martyrs, martyrs, and exploiting the nations, which is why she's so filthy rich, is because she's exploiting all the other, all the provinces of Rome, the, the entire Mediterranean world, exploiting them economically, making Rome rich. Right. Although we can only attach so much stigma to jewels and, and gold and all the rest, because the New Jerusalem is going to come crashing to earth as a, as a 1,500-mile cube of gold and jewels, right? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's worse we, than we, that, we, we, like, we like gold and jewels, don't we? we? Well, we do. The problem with gold and jewels in Revelation, this is, this, is, this is one of these things, this is what I end my book with, is that the opposition to wealth in uh, Revelation is not the same kind of opposition that you find in, uh, say, in the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus mm. says, wealth doesn't matter, you know, don't worry about treasures on earth, worry about getting treasures in heaven. He tells people, give away all of your wealth, give it all away, help the poor, you're supposed to be helping the poor. And there the idea is wealth really doesn't matter, it just gets in your way of worshiping God. When you get to Revelation, wealth is not a problem. The problem with wealth is that the wrong people have it. Hmm. Rome has it. It's the Christians who ought to have it. And so God's going to take it from the Romans and give it to the Christians. So all those, you're right, all that gold, silver, and jewels, that, that's great. The Christians are going to get it all. It's going to be under new management. New management, yeah. yeah. The same thing with domination. You know, G, uh, the, the problem is not that Rome is dominating the earth in terms of like the domination is bad. The domination is great. It's just mm. not supposed to be Rome. It's supposed to be the Christian church. They're supposed to dominate the earth. And so when they get that city of gold, all of the other nations of earth bow down in subservience to them, and the Christians rule the earth with a rod of iron. <laughs> so they're just as bad as Rome was, but you know they're on God's side, so it's not considered bad. I think I'm still confused about the logic of the millennium. So Jesus comes back, he spares his his elect all the tribulation so that, you know all hell breaks loose on earth but then he ushers in a thousand years of peace and prosperity and presumably everyone who's who gets to enjoy this thousand years 
under his reign, has to be pretty convinced at this point that you know, he's the son of God. As at minimum, it's worth being on his team, right? So who is left at the end? Who who has not been convinced at the end of these thousand years that then gets hurled into a lake of fire? It's just all the dead people who get resurrected who didn't have the benefit of of seeing this demonstration of of Jesus's majesty for a thousand years. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's even more complicated than that. <laughs> and so so. I earlier said that the rapture is not found in the book of Revelation, that the idea of the rapture was invented by Darby in the 1830s. Revelation Mm. doesn't have this view that the Christians will be taken out. Right. Revelation has the view that they're left here for the uh, tribulation, uh, for all the catastrophes that are going to hit. And one of the things that happens is that the beast, the enemy of, uh, of God, the Antichrist figure, martyrs. A lot of Christians. What happens with the millennium is it comes after the Battle of Armageddon. Christ wipes out the beast and the armies, and he rules the earth for a thousand years, but just with the martyrs, not with all Christians. Most Christians have never been martyred. So he rules just with the martyrs, and at the end of that, then what happens is there's a last judgment. And so, where's everyone else's dead? Uh, apart from the, the martyrs, or, or everyone else has, Every, has been subjugated by the tyranny of the thousand-year Christian Reich? The problem is that Revelation itself is gloriously inconsistent on this point, mm. <laughs> because it's, what, what happens at the millennium at Armageddon is Jesus wipes out all of the armies of earth, but it doesn't say he wipes out every human on earth. He rules with his martyrs over the earth, so presumably they're ruling the other people. Hmm. But then at the end of the millennium, there's this final judgment where everyone is either given the glorious city or cast into the lake of fire. And so everyone opposed to Christ is thrown into the lake of fire, living hmm. and dead. But then, but then, when they're ruling in the city, we're told that the adulterers and murderers and people outside are not allowed into the city. Wait a second. Hmm. What murderers and adulterers? <laughs> Isn't there room in the lake for those miscreants? <laughs> it's like it's too crowded in there or something, but then all the kings, all the other kings bring their wealth into the city. Well, what kings? Mm. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's terrific how though, it just, it, it doesn't add up. <laughs> it just mm. doesn't add up. Well, I am getting the, the sneaking suspicion that it's not going to work out so well for an atheist Jew like myself. I think I've, I've got t- yeah, at least two strikes against me. You're not in good shape. The, the, the upside is uh, the upside is that in the teachings of Jesus, you're okay, right? If you're yeah. a good person, that you, you actually can inherit the kingdom as a, a, an atheist Jew, as long as you're a good guy who helps, yeah. helps the poor. But in the book of Revelation, not only, not only you atheist Jews and mm. the rest of us will be thrown in the lake of fire, but even a lot of Christians, probably most Christians, will be thrown in the lake of fire in mm. Revelation. Perhaps we spoke about this last time, but it remains a point of surprise for me that we could have had two millennia of virulent Christian-inspired anti-Semitism when all the while Jesus and his mother, the mother of God, the Virgin Mary, and all the disciples were Jews, right? How do, it's, a, it's a surprising bit of moral math that someone managed to do. 2,000 years ago to figure out how to hate the Jews, all the while loving Jesus more than anything. So, 
Yeah, no, it's a great question because, you know, the reality is that Jesus, you know, Jesus was a Jew, and his, his earliest followers understood him to be the Jewish Messiah. He'd been sent from the Jewish God to the Jewish people to fulfill the Jewish law. And they thought that, of course, to be a follower of Jesus, you had to be Jewish. So the very earliest followers, after they believed in the resurrection, this was original Christianity. What ends up happening is, of course, that Christianity becomes not only a non-Jewish, largely a non-Jewish religion, not completely, but a largely non-Jewish religion, and largely an anti-Jewish religion. And there's a question of why that happens. It, it actually does relate to the book of Revelation, because in Revelation, the author mentions, John mentions, a, a local synagogue and calls it the synagogue of Satan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's not good. <laughs> what I think happened is this. The, the Christians believed that Jesus was, he was the Messiah, and they thought that that meant that he must have been predicted as the Messiah. And that meant they started scouring their Hebrew Bible texts to try and figure out how that could be, since the Messiah was supposed to be a figure of grandeur and power who destroyed the enemy. But Jesus was the opposite. He was a nobody who got crucified for crimes against the state. And so what they did is they looked through their Bibles and they started finding passages that described somebody who was a a righteous man of God who uh, suffered. And in some passages, like in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 53, the one who suffers, the suffering servant of the Lord, suffers for the sins of others and eventually is vindicated. And they thought that applies to Jesus. Mm. And they, so they thought, well, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's referring to Jesus. Psalm 68, Isaiah, etc. They started claiming that these passages are predictions of the Messiah, even though these passages never mentioned the Messiah, and nobody had ever interpreted them as referring to the Messiah. But the Christians said, oh yes, these are referring to Jesus. Well, that wasn't it also the case with, that the gospel writers were quoting Old Testament passages as though they were confirming prophecy? I mean, you're basically writing the book that is confirming the, the older book's seeming predictions, or at least like consciously echoing the texts from the earlier books. Absolutely. That's, that's how it works. These Christians begin saying these passages refer to the Messiah, and so when the Gospel writers, living de- decades later, write their stories, they incorporate these passages into their stories. And so when you read the crucifixion story in, uh, in any of the Gospels, it's clear this, is ha- this has all sorts of allusions to these allegedly messianic passages. Uh, and then they, they go farther. They say that Isaiah predicted that the, uh, that, uh, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and mm-hmm. uh, Micah predicts that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And so the Gospel writers think all of that, even though these passages were not used to refer to a Messiah among Jews, and they write their stories accordingly. But what ends up happening then is that Jews and Christians conflict over this. The Christians will say, Don't you, can't you read? It's right here. Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus dying for sins. He's the Messiah who dies for sins. And Jews look at the same passage and they say, there's, there's no Messiah in here. This is, not, mm. this is not referring to the Messiah. And they end up having a falling out over Scripture. And this falling out leads to very strong disagreements. It, I mean, it's strong, much stronger than the polit- not much stronger than the political disagreements today. It's hard to get much stronger than that. Mm. 
But it's that kind of thing where just animosity erupts and the other person is the enemy. And so Jews become the enemy for, uh, for Christians, and they're misled by Satan. Uh, and so this becomes a trope within early Christianity, and it's why Christianity starts out as a sect within Judaism and then eventually becomes a principally Gentile, anti-Jewish religion. Mm, mm, interesting. Well, Bart, uh, I guess one, just one final question. What, what's your view, insofar as you have one now, of the ascendancy or not of Christian theocratic aspirations in the United States, I guess? I mean, is, it, are, are, is the diehard evangelical movement ascending or disintegrating? I mean, I, it, because I stand so far outside of this, it's, uh-huh. you know, I only have poll results to go on. And I must say it yeah. was quite perplexing to see Trump inducted as the standard bearer for evangelical Christianity, given how uh, obvious it was that he was not a man of faith of uh, any sort. So uh, what's your view of the, the status of fundamentalist Christian aspiration and political power in the U.S. at this point? Yeah, well, we, we clearly ain't talking about the moral majority anymore. Mm. <laughs> uh, that agenda has disappeared. Mm. I think that it's frightening, and in part, it's not because I you know hate ev- evangelicals, or it's, it's not that. It's that people who are in the evangelical communities are being convinced about certain social agenda that uh, they think are biblical and therefore have to be uh, fought for to the death virtually. The abortion issue is one of the clearest instances of this. The New Testament says nothing about abortion, and the Old Testament says nothing about abortion per se. The, uh, the people who quote verses about, the abortion, about abortion simply are taking things so far out of context, and they don't even pay attention to what these verses are actually saying. The only passages in the, in the Bible uh, about that are, are related to abortion are in the, the Torah and the law, a passage in Exodus and a passage in Numbers that both presuppose that the unborn child is not a human being yet. Mm. Is and that because so they, of some passage about injuring or you know, killing a pregnant woman or in, you know, killing her yeah. fetus? Yeah. Well, that's one of them. The, mm. In Exodus, right after the Ten Commandments are given, you have a list of commandments about what to do. If this happens, then do that. And you have this case where you have two men are fighting, and right next to them is standing a pregnant woman, and she somehow gets hit, and she miscarries. Hmm. And the question is, what, what's the penalty for that? Well, if, if the woman gets hit and miscarries and she dies, then it's the death penalty. The person who hit her has to pay the death penalty. If she doesn't die and the, child miscarry, and the child's miscarried, then there's a fine that has to be paid to her husband for the child. So, in other words, the the child's not a human, because if the child were a human, it would be a death penalty. And so it's clear as day, they're not considering this person, they're not considering it a person yet. And then there's another passage in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 5, where if a woman is suspected of committing adultery and she's pregnant, the priest is to give her this kind of magical drink. And if the magical drink makes her miscarry, then it shows that she committed adultery. Uh, Hmm. But if she doesn't miscarry, then it shows that she did not commit adultery. But that means that they're giving a drink to produce an abortion Mm -hmm. under God's law. So obviously Hmm. it's not killing somebody. 
And so my point is, is that if you really want to talk about whether a fetus is a human being or not, and you want to use the Bible, these are the two passages. And it, they are not condemning abortion. But the, uh, the religious right has insisted since the night, I mean, it actually goes back to Nixon, but it goes, since the 1970s especially, the religious right has, has gotten onto this. The religious right was not historically against abortion. It's just a fairly modern phenomenon. But now everybody's convinced that's in the Bible. And so that's a large part of the reason for supporting Trump is because they knew he would get Supreme Court justices who supported their social agenda. And it didn't matter that he was one of the most immoral human beings on the planet. It didn't matter. And so I think it's scary because these people with their own agendas are appealing to the Bible even though the Bible doesn't support their agendas, but then they convince all of their evangelical mates that they've got to vote for the candidates that they choose. And it ends up, I mean, it's scary. It's beyond the abortion thing. I mean, white nationalism is not just, uh, you know, it's not just kind of a political social phenomenon. It's also a religious phenomenon. People use mm. religion, you know, biblical texts to support yeah. their racism. And their anger and their hatred, and then they get everybody out to vote because you know they've got to support these agenda, and they're not even biblical agenda. The biblical agenda are that you're supposed to help those who are poor and needy and outcast. I mean, don't these people read the teachings of Jesus? It's unbelievable. Jesus would hate <laughs> this kind of agenda. But well, except you know, except Jesus, when he comes back, he's kind of all in for the killing of the no, the Jesus of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, white nationalists would love the, the, uh, the, the book of Revelation. But in my book, my, the way I end my book is by arguing that the kind of values that are embraced in the book of Revelation are precisely at odds with the values of the historical Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I, John, whoever, you know, John of Patmos certainly thought that he was a Christian and a devoted follower of Christ. But I don't think Jesus would have recognized him. Because, in fact, he celebrates domination and wealth, which are the two things Jesus was most opposed to. Jesus believed in, in helping the poor and serving others, not dominating them. And that simply is not what Revelation favors. And so it's not a surprise that most, you know, a lot of these evangelical Christians, they love Revelation, but they really don't pay attention to what Jesus himself was saying. Hmm. Well, Bart... As always, it's great to talk to you. You're, uh, you're my guide through this morass. It's, it's always fun to get into the details with you. So um, thanks again. And uh, once again, the book is Armageddon. And um, I recommend uh, people read it. Okay. It's a great window onto, these, onto this topic. Great. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it.